This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Good afternoon and welcome. We are definitely in a fourth wave. That's the conclusion of some of the province's top doctors. What does it mean and how will it be different from the first, second and third waves? And as of yesterday, the province is reporting the numbers in a new way. What will this help us understand and what, if anything, will it obscure? The numbers... 416-360-0740, 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And now I'd like to welcome Dr. Peter Uni, Scientific Director of Ontario's COVID-19 Science Advisory Table. Hi, Dr. Uni. Hi, Libby. So what convinced you that we are in a fourth wave already? Well, the data, uh, our own data, but then also our behaviour, and everything of this in comparison with the other provinces and with other countries. No? When we look at that together, it's clear uh, we see the impact now of step three fully. And what we see now is that we are robustly above one with uh, something we call the effective uh, reproduction number, RT. Um, if, it's, if this is as one, this just means, you know, we have about the same cases every day and 100 new cases uh, cause another 100. Now we're at 1.5. This means on average 100 new cases cause an additional 150. And uh, that's what we just need to be aware of now. We're now in that stage. But of course, it will behave differently, luckily, thanks to the vaccine. Okay, so I think that uh, people are getting confused because we're getting mixed messages. So on the one hand, we're hearing we're in a fourth wave. It's going to get worse when the kids go back to school. We're being rash. There's a problem because of the Delta variant is much more contagious. And then on the other hand, we hear from some of our top doctors, we have to learn to live with this. This is not alarming. So uh, can we get a clear message, please? Look, we need to take this seriously, but not panic. That's the point now. What we need to be aware of is this will be a pandemic now of the unvaccinated. And the challenges we have is... Take my age, I'm 53. People my age, 25% of those in this province are not fully vaccinated yet. Guess what? We and people a bit older than I am, you know, in the 50s and in the 60s, we will contribute roughly 70 to 80% of all the ICU admissions that are forthcoming if we remain unvaccinated. If we're vaccinated, we will be good to go. You know, this becomes like a sniffle for us or, you know, just like a regular upper respiratory tract infection. So the challenge we have now is to get as many people of those, especially who are, you know, at risk of ending up in an ICU that's my age or a bit older, to really get vaccinated and take this seriously. There's absolutely no reason not to get vaccinated. The the problem is... Uh, sorry, just to just yeah. to finish that sentence, super severate. The problem really is now everybody will eventually get infected within the next six to twelve months, or nearly everybody, eighty to ninety percent. There's no way out. There is no third way of oh, I just stay a little bit secure. As long as you're not a hermit, you will get infected. So make sure you get vaccinated now. Uh, I was going to say, I don't know what your Twitter feed looks like, Dr. Uni, but I I don't have any. uh, Yeah, that's probably wise. But I can tell you, though, on most things, I usually try to be even handed when it comes to vaccination. I am not. And um, the, the people who are opposed to it are just getting more and more virulent. And the more evidence that you show them, the angrier they seem to get. That's okay. You know, life will eventually kick in there. You know, it's the point is we need to get as much good information, adequate information, no lies, 
adequate information to those who are at the edge. And that's really important now. And especially, you know, for the 40s, 50s, 60s, those please just get vaccinated. There will be people who will uh, continue to say the Earth is flat and Apollo, uh, the Apollo mission never happened. That's okay. <laughs> but that's perhaps only 8 to 10 percent. They're very vocal, but uh, that's just they're vocal. That's not a big deal. One of the things that I get a lot of is uh, stop calling us anti-vaxxers. It's just these vaccines, we don't want to be guinea pigs. So what do you say to that? Yeah, look, they don't understand that this vaccine development and evaluation program is the most stringent and, you know, most carefully done in humanity's history. When I compare the data we had, you know, for previous vaccines 10 years, 20 years ago, the data we're having for this one, this has never been the case that you would have that much data. That's really remarkable. And people need to understand that this is just, you know, people dogmatically repeating what they heard from others. If you understand that I've been in the business for 25 years, I can tell you I'm pretty good at knowing what is crappy data and what is not. These data are rock solid. No. Do we know absolutely everything? No, of course not, because the pandemic has been around only around 18 months. But we know a lot. And what we see now, you know, the reason that we can open that much and still are not in complete uh, uh, problems right now. This is just because of the vaccination rollout, nothing else. Everybody who suggests the opposite is at the same level as suggesting the Earth is flat. Okay, Uh, you're throwing down the the gauntlet, I see. Uh, I'd like to ask a few questions about the new way of reporting the numbers. And uh, I think it is also encouraging some people to say, aha, uh, because so now um, it is focusing on the number of people who are vaccinated and the number of people who are not vaccinated. Uh, and I have to open something here. But um, a lot of the people who who are, you know, most of the people who are new cases are still unvaccinated, 234 out of 324. But there's still a reasonable number uh, who are who are fully vaccinated. So, what do you say to people about that? Oh, that's absolutely true. What you're saying, and this will happen uh, uh, more and more now. If the when when the fourth wave, you know, takes off, the point is twofold. First of all, the vaccines are really excellent, but they're not perfect. So we will see what we call breakthrough infections. And there, in the overwhelming majority of cases, not a big deal. You know, people have a sniffle, very little, you know, or just a little bit of just a pressure in their ears or something like that. Forget about it. That's not a big deal. What is important to realize is, and, uh, you know, these data still have their kinks and this will become more stable over time, is uh, what we will see regarding ICU admissions and the hospital admissions. And again, keep in mind of those people who are at high risk, of being admitted to the hospital or ending up in the ICU, roughly 80% on average are fully vaccinated. You know, uh, that's younger people typically, or then, uh, you know, people in the 40s or so where more people are not uh, vaccinated yet fully. But 80% of people at risk are fully vaccinated and they contribute very few hospital admissions and ICU admissions. That's I'm, the take-home message here. I'm, I'm looking at uh, the numbers today from in ICU due to COVID-19. Yes. Unvaccinated, zero. Partially yes. vaccinated, seven. And fully vaccinated, five. Exactly. What we see there now, first of all, I don't know yet how the numbers actually occur. Yesterday, the numbers were different. But what we see And they didn't add up. The, that the roughly, the roughly um, 80% people at risk of ICU um, right now, according to these data, contribute um, five. And the other one, let me just go to the same to the same one here. Vaccinations. I'm just opening here, and uh, the other seven are partially vaccinated people. And you have a little bit of random variation today, so unvaccinated zero for a moment. But remember. of those at risk are fully vaccinated. They contribute five. Seven uh, are partially vaccinated or not vaccinated. And that's about 20% of those people at risk. So don't be misleaded by the crude numbers. Think about how many people have had two needles in their arms 
who are at risk above the age of 40. And that gives you then, you know, the real perspective on that. A lot of people are uh, very worried about what's going to happen when kids go back to school. Are you? Yeah, we need to be very careful. You know, we have different issues to look at. First of all, of course, when we now go to a next step, and from my perspective, the only logical next step after step three is school reopening. There can't be anything in between because we're already challenged right now. So if we open schools, this will contribute to transmission as well. And what we need to be very clear about is that uh, that we will see more growth. That's one thing. But the other thing is, for those kids below the age of 12, we don't have a vaccine yet. So they haven't had an opportunity to be vaccinated. And this means they haven't had an opportunity or their parents haven't had to protect them if they want to. So we need to be very careful and monitor very carefully what's going on. What we see in the U.S. is that numbers of hospitalizations in younger kids start to go up. And we would like to avoid that happening here, too. We need a few more months until um, the uh, vaccines have also been improved, uh, sorry, approved for a younger kid. Well, I, I, I wonder if that's what it will take to change some people's minds. What do you mean? I mean, um, if, if once they see children in hospital, because one of the things uh, from the first waves is like, oh, kids don't get too sick with this even though that doesn't mean all kids. I'm, I'm wondering if we start seeing children getting very sick like we're seeing in the U.S. If I hope if, not. And you, you see, you're right with that. You know, this pandemic has always been very confusing and counterintuitive for a lot of people. That's also one of the reasons we see all these conspiracy theories going. No? The problem here is right now that Delta, again, just has moved the goalpost so much, you know, and it's basically just a new set of cards we're, we're given. And we just need to deal with it. Without the vaccines, we will be in dear trouble. Right now, the only thing we need to do is to get everybody vaccinated. Then things will look even better. And remember, we've never been as open as we are right now, and we're doing actually pretty well. Imagine the same uh, a year ago with the same Delta variant. We would be in absolute trouble right now. Okay. Dr. Peter Uni, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Bye-bye. Bye. Before we get to our next guest, I'm going to take a call from Jody, who has been waiting very patiently. Hello, Joni. Hi, it's Jody. Jody, sorry. Yeah, thank you for taking my call, Libby. I'm just phoning to say it has to become mandatory for everyone to be vaccinated. If we're dealing with a deadly disease and a person doesn't want to take advantage of a vaccine that could save their life, that's their business. But we're not dealing with a deadly disease. We're dealing with a contagious deadly disease. People talk about their freedoms. We have freedoms, but we're not free to hurt other people. And they are hurting other people by not being vaccinated. Okay, Jody. thank you very much for that. Thank you. Bye-bye. Oh, a lot of people would disagree with Jody, but right now let's bring in Dr. Alon Vaisman, infectious diseases and infection control physician at the University Health Network, and Ryan Imgrund, an, education, an educator and biostatistician who's been providing daily COVID-19 data analysis for Ontario and Canada. Hello to both of you. Thank you for having me. Thanks for having me. Uh, Ryan, I'm going to start with you. So uh, what do you think of the new way the province is reporting? Yeah, I think it's fantastic. I think that's really what we need to be focusing on is how many cases are from the vaccinated versus the unvaccinated. I think one thing I would like to see addressed a little bit more is we should start to treat the partially vaccinated as unvaccinated, at least when it comes down to these statistics. I think it's a little bit misleading when we're showing the partially vaccinated statistics. Um, so one little change that I'd like to see is we have fully vaccinated and we have those that are not fully vaccinated. I think that's the encouragement that we need right now in order to get people vaccinated. But I absolutely love that they're finally reporting these numbers. I think it's great. Uh Dr. Vaisman, what do you think? And, and my big question is, is the change in reporting, is it, is it still going to be easy for us to compare ourselves to people in other provinces and other countries? They're reporting these data, understanding the, for the public where the cases are coming from is important. 
The one other thing I would add that would help us to understand our situation compared to other countries is also to look at the proportion of people who are vaccinated who got the illness as opposed to what proportion of people who have COVID have been vaccinated. The reason that's important is that if you look at the total number of people vaccinated in Ontario, something around you know 10 or 11 million, the number of people who actually picked up COVID is quite small. It's 0.2 or 0.3 percent. So that's that number kind of frames it in people's minds that how effective this vaccine is as opposed to thinking about the total COVID cases and what proportion are vaccinated. Well, yeah, the, 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 the proportion of vaccinated people or the number of vaccinated people getting it, you know, for people who are on the fence or against vaccination, they say, uh-huh, look at that. Yeah, I and mean, if you just look at the total, you know, what's the proportion of people getting COVID who are unvaccinated compared to those who are vaccinated? It's quite a lot bigger if you're not vaccinated. That's the main message. The thing is, over time, as more and more people get vaccinated, we will anticipate that the majority of COVID cases do come from vaccinated people. That doesn't mean that the vaccine is not effective. It's more of a marker of the great job people are doing getting vaccinated. Hmm. Uh, do you agree with that, Ryan? Yeah, actually, I do. And I think it's interesting. I've been looking at like data from even 50 through 59-year-olds. And one thing that we're finding in 50 through 59-year-olds is there's about four times as many people vaccinated as unvaccinated. But at the exact same time, they also reduce the risk profile by about four times. So in the end, you'd actually expect to see the same number of cases in vaccinated versus unvaccinated. And that can be very alarming if it's not shared along with the vaccination rate. So, right, I think that those two things have to be paired up. Um, you know, if you look in the 80 plus population, well, we can expect to see more cases in the vaccinated versus unvaccinated because, you know, most of the of the 80 plus population is actually vaccinated and you are going to see the odd breakthrough infection. Okay. Do, do we have any sense of who is vulnerable to a breakthrough infection? Dr. Vaseman. Well, well, one thing that we haven't seen is we haven't seen yet from the like, province um, a full daily breakdown of where we're seeing those cases in, in terms of the actual age groups. Um, but from what, what I've seen, um, we seem to be seeing breakthrough infections in all the age groups. Um, it's a very similar like, proportion. Um, if you look at the risk profile of each of the age groups, it seems to be very, very similar. So from what I've seen at a very, very tentative look at the Ontario data, um, I haven't seen a breakthrough infection um, more common in one age cohort than the next. But that's a very, very brief look at the data. And, and Dr. Vaisman, I mean, there there are other things that put people at risk for more severe COVID, obesity being one of them. Have you noticed anything that, that strikes you in terms of the people getting breakthrough infre- infections? The other group, of course, that we would anticipate breakthroughs to be more likely based on serological data would be the immunocompromised group. So with two doses of the vaccine, the assumption based on these studies is that their immune response is not as good as somebody who has a normal immune system, and hence why the rationale now that's starting to gather steam is to give those individuals a third dose. So, you know, the other factor, of course, is that people who are immune compromised also may be very careful and not expose themselves to other people. But in a, you know, a standard kind of society where things are opened up, then we would anticipate that people who are immune compromised would be more likely to pick up the virus despite being fully vaccinated. Is there a serious discussion about third doses? They're already doing it in Israel, though uh, those people would have had their first doses, first and second doses, long before we did. Yep. I mean, the discussion around boosters is, of course, an important one to think about. Uh, In Canada, it may be a little bit early. The thing that would be very telling for us um, is the randomized control trials, which are now underway, looking at whether the boosters, how valuable the boosters will be in preventing uh, transmission or preventing infection in some individuals. And the focus in those countries that have begun the third doses is specifically in the people who are older or immune compromised. And that's based on pre-existing data that shows that a third dose would actually boost your immunity levels, but not on concrete data showing that it's, you know, like a randomized trial showing the benefit. Um, Yeah, I mean, uh, one extremely disappointing thing that we found here yesterday on this show was that, in fact, tens of thousands of doses of Moderna have been discarded, uh, even though there was some advocacy around giving it to immunocompromised people. So it was discarded, and it wasn't sent to Africa either. Ryan? Yeah, I mean, you know, that's... uh 
that's always worrisome when, you know, we want more people vaccinated when we're looking at things uh, like booster shots, third shots to the immunocompromised, and we're not doing that. But from what I'm seeing, you know, we've got some really, really good vaccination outreach, especially in the like greater Toronto area. I mean, you know, you've got public health officials walking through parks, going up to strangers, you know, um, seeing if they've been vaccinated or not. So I think, you know, with that being said, you know, the outreach has been pretty good. Um, you know, at the same time, once the vaccine has been shipped here, I think there's, you know, some logistics in like transporting that to other places once it's already here. But absolutely, whenever the vaccine goes to waste, whenever we, you know, lose a dose, it's not just a dose loss for our country. It's, a, it's really a dose loss for everywhere. Okay, I have another question. And this is about reactions to the vaccine and and side effects uh because i started to get very large numbers of phone calls from people who insist that they had a terrible reaction to the vaccine and it was definitely the vaccine and when one calls suddenly there's a whole raft of them so how common is that generally and and again how would you know i mean if you experience something uh in a certain proximity to getting a vaccination how do people know that it's the vaccine it's uh it's a very good question sometimes it's hard to tell especially if there's multiple interventions of patients on multiple medications or was recently ill from another reason the best way people can tell is to you know examine how you're feeling before and after the vaccine over the first 30 days or so after you received it I think people should recognize, and we've been talking about this for the last few months, that there are many short-term side effects of the vaccine that are temporary. It's very common for people to feel systemically unwell, to have headaches, to have muscle pains, but the vast majority of these symptoms resolve within 24 or 48 hours. Of course, the side effects related to AstraZeneca are very well documented with the clotting. With the mRNA vaccine in younger people, especially younger males, there is now being recognized the side effect of having um, a heart side effect, um, specifically something called myocarditis. But in general, in the vast majority of the population, these side effects are quite rare. Even though short-term side effects are very common, long-term is quite quite rare and unlikely. Mm-hmm. So, uh, I mean, what do you say to these people? I don't know what to say. They're calling me on the phone. I can't say that's not really a side effect. Um, you know, but it does strike me that for people uh, who don't want the vaccine, they'll kind of seize on anything. Yep, it's a, it's a great question. I would say to these individuals to speak to their clinicians, uh, to the whoever's looking after them, nurses, physicians, whoever it is, to ask them, uh, you know, go over the medical history, go over the physical examination, talk it over. Those are the people who know the patients best. I can figure out whether it's in fact a side effect of the vaccine or it's attributable to something else. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, again, I mean, uh, these new statistics and, and numbers are designed, I guess, to to win people over, um, though. I don't know, uh, Ryan, uh, do you think how do you think that would work? Because it seems that the more this goes on, the, the more entrenched they are in their position. Yeah, and that's it. I think, you know, we're at a state now that even when this information has been shared, I mean, you know, sharing this stuff very vocally on my uh like Twitter account, um, you know, I see the responses and, um, you know, and you get the people that are leeching on to whatever fact they want. Um, and I think, you know, that's the unfortunate thing. As I was saying earlier on, you know, one of the big things which people have been leeching on to recently is, oh, well, there's more cases in the 80-year-olds that are vaccinated. So we shouldn't be getting vaccinated. It's absolutely not. It's the like, proportion. You So it's really tough to like, communicate this information properly. And even when you do, I think a lot of people that are firmly entrenched in these anti-vaccination attitudes, it's going to be really, really tough to change them. With that being said, I still think we need this information out there because there are people that want this information, that want this data, that are maybe able to share it with friends, family members, um, and you know have those that are on the fence um, you know, move to the side of vaccination because that's really what we need. We need more people vaccinated. Now, here's something on the other side. So, um, and I think part of it is that people who are fully vaccinated are angry that there isn't mandatory vaccination for healthcare workers or for education workers. But a lot of people who are fully vaccinated are still hesitant about doing the things that supposedly they can do because they don't want to be around unvaccinated people. What do you say to those people? Yeah, I think that's interesting. I think, you know, we're in a situation where if you look to 
Europe, let's say. I think, I mean, a good place to look to is Germany. They're in a very similar situation to Ontario right now, similar case counts. Um, and, you know, they're like, talking a lot about having this 3G system. Um, and basically, they're, it's the German terminology for in a situation where individuals are going to do high-risk activities, they need to be vaccinated, had a previous infection, or need to have a test. We're even going further into that and saying, look, once October comes, you're going to need these requirements, and we're not going to pay for your testing anymore. So I think it's good because it's going to push people into that vaccination front. As I said, you know, we're seeing countries that have very similar views to here in Ontario, uh, like Germany, they're going full steam ahead with it. Um, so I personally would like to see that here. Oh, like a vaccine passport. But barring that, Dr. Vaisman, do you say any, what do you say to people who are fully vaccinated? You say, you know, relax? Well, I think it's hard not to equate an unvaccinated person with somebody who has COVID. And if you look at that remaining people who haven't been vaccinated in Ontario, probably there is a small, hardcore group of them who are truly what's commonly termed anti-vaxxers. But the bulk of them are just individuals who just haven't been educated or who don't have good English literacy skills, who are just hesitant for a variety of reasons. So I think it's important not to ostracize or treat them as pariahs because ultimately you're going to end up marginalizing people who you want to help. So while cases are especially low, it's important not to kind of think of that, think of them that way as equate them for being as being infected. But certainly around high risk areas, we should be more strict about vaccines, healthcare settings, education settings, congregate settings. But, you know, a lot of what we're discussing isn't that we're talking about social situations, which is quite different. Okay. Uh, anything you want to leave us with, Ryan Imgrund? Yeah, I think, you know, when it, when it comes to social situations, I think what, one thing that we should be looking at is if we follow the data here in Ontario, we know that the stage three opening has led to an uptick in cases. The uptick has been since stage three. So stage three has those higher risk activities. And I think, you know, we do need to see something around those higher risk activities. I think we've kind of stalled when it comes down to first doses, and we need that kind of an incentive to get people vaccinated. And I'd really like to see somewhat of a vaccine passport system around higher risk activities. Which, let me, sorry to interrupt, by which you mean indoor dining, uh, you know, places where there are crowds. I've heard of museums and ball games where there isn't very much distancing. For sure. And I think those three indoor dining gyms, uh, higher risk activities, even, you know, we're like talking the next few weeks about, um, you know, like opening more indoor activities without like capacity limits. Those need to be associated, in my opinion, with a vaccine passport because they're just way too risky. And if we're seeing increases now and it's August with stage three opening, once we open up more, we're definitely not going to see numbers come down. Okay. Thank you for that, Ryan Imgrund and Dr. Alon Vaisman. We appreciate your time and your insight. Thank you. you take care. Bye-bye. All right. We have to take a break. And when we come back, we'll be talking to the latest professional organization that is calling for mandatory vaccination for healthcare workers. We'll have that when we come back and we'll take more of your calls. 416-360-0740, toll free one 866 740-4740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Schneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. The Ontario Long-Term Care Association is the latest professional association to call on the Ford government to mandate COVID-19 vaccinations for all healthcare workers. And in this case, long-term care staff. They join other groups like the Ontario Medical Association and the Registered Nurses Association of Ontario. And it's a change from their earlier position, which advocated persuasion and education rather than making it compulsory. Now, other organizations have been through similar evolution and say simply that the time for persuasion has passed. So why the change here? Let's go to Donna Duncan, CEO of the Ontario Long-Term Care Association. Hi, Donna. Hi, Libby. It's great to be here today. Thank you for being with us. So why did you change your position to call for mandatory vaccination? You know, it really has, as you noted, been a process for us. Let's remember, we didn't have a vaccine a year ago, let alone three vaccines. And we've been through a lot of evolution in the guidance on the vaccines. 
uh, long-term care homes were the first uh, to, we were prioritized and very fortunate to be prioritized for our residents and our staff almost nine months ago um, it, for many people. So we're moving into fall. We're moving into that annual cycle of flu season. Um, and we've done a lot of work and we're really committed uh, to do everything we could to uh, educate people, to help everybody recognize that these vaccines are safe that this is the weapon against this horrible disease. Uh, and uh, we made enormous progress. We have less than 10% of our 80,000 employees in our long-term care sector who, who haven't been vaccinated um, uh, or don't, haven't been fully vaccinated. I would say it's probably closer to 5 to 7% who haven't had second doses. So we're dealing with a minority of people, uh, but quite honestly, our members feel that they just, the, the ed- we're going to continue to try with education and peer mentorship and trying to get vaccines on site, but it's just not enough. We're running out of bandwidth to move those remaining staff, and we're we're running out of runway. Where you know we're reading the news and hearing in the news about the second, the fourth wave already hitting, and this Delta variant we're seeing in our long-term care homes increasingly. Um, we're still very fortunate. We have. Yesterday, we had five homes in outbreak, um, but we know what happened in wave two. September was when it started in our homes again. So we we need to get out ahead of this uh, next wave. We need to address the Delta variant. And so we're advocating for all healthcare workers because as we experienced in the last 18 months, we have hospital people coming in and out of our homes, home care individuals, lots of professionals who come to help us over the last 18 months. Uh, you know, we, we really want to make sure that we stabilize the whole health workforce and in doing so support our, our residents, uh, but also support Do- our staff. Donna, one question that I had, uh, and I believe that you're also saying that doing this would help you retain staff. I I don't quite understand that because right now, no healthcare workers are mandated. Uh, They probably have to take more tests if they're not vaccinated. So how would this make a difference in terms of retaining your staff versus them going to another healthcare setting? So, you know, our concern is that we don't have it apply to the entire healthcare sector, that we will be prejudiced. Um, and we'll be prejudiced, one, because those who are maybe hesitant, but a mandated vaccine would, would, would get them to be vaccinated, to stay in our home, uh, but they may move to another care setting where there, it's not mandated. But also, if other parts of the healthcare system don't mandate it, they may well lose staff who are parents whose kids are back at school, who are worried, who, who you know, are worried because they're working beside people who, who aren't vaccinated. Uh, and so then they, we could see a migration of our employees out of our sector to fill those vacancies created in those other settings. It's a, it's a vicious circle. And we really want to make sure that it's, we're all in this together and anybody providing direct care um, is, is there because they care. And uh, we just need to give everybody a, a firmer, clean, clearer direction across the board to move this forward. We don't want our residents to have to be locked down again. Our frontline staff, quite honestly, those those who have survived, and, and we have lost a lot of staff over the last 18 months, including to mental illness and, and post-traumatic stress syndrome, um, they want to know if they're getting vaccinated and they've got, they're, they're doing in the interests of, of themselves and their families and their residents, but also in, in support of their colleagues. And they want to know that their colleagues have their back too. Uh, Donna, just a, a final question. I know that you advocate for this. Uh, you know, frankly, a lot of people find uh, the government's stand on this fairly incomprehensible. Do you sense any kind of movement on it? And where are you at in terms of talking to them? So, you know, we're really encouraged that others have joined Advantage Ontario, has joined us with the RNAO and the OMA. Uh, we have labor partners who have joined us, our family and residence councils today. The uh, Ontario uh, retirement communities uh, came out in favor of this, uh, this approach as well. We have a new minister. Uh, he is, uh, I believe, asking the right questions. He's going into long-term care homes, sometimes surprising us, <laughs> uh, unannounced, uh, having very candid discussions with residents, staff, and families. And, uh, we, you know, we, we expect he's hearing exactly what we're hearing, and, and we're hoping that as he listens to those voices, uh, that 
um, he will be able to work with and, and support his colleagues in, in moving on this. As I said, we're running out of runway. We're, we're moving into September, trying to open up the economy. We've got schools going back, uh, and we know that our residents are the most vulnerable, and, and we don't want to have lockdowns anymore. We just, we just, this is the thing that will get us closest to normal, and we've made a lot of sacrifices over the last 18 months, and in our view, this is the tool that we need, and uh, we're talking about a minority of people in the healthcare sector, uh, less than 10%, so let's do this to help okay. them and support them in moving. Okay, Donna Duncan, thank you for joining us. Thanks, Libby. Take care. Bye-bye. We're going to take another break, and when we come back, uh, we're going to talk about the two Michaels and Robert Robert Schellenberg, who has a death sentence against him, uh, the latest from China on the Canadians hostage there, when we come back. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. The news about our hostages, and I am deliberately calling them hostages, in China is grim. Late last night, we learned that Michael Spavor has been sentenced to 11 years in prison. Earlier, a Chinese court upheld a death sentence for Canadian Robert Schellenberg, who was convicted of drug trafficking. And since then, we've had strongly worded statements from both the prime minister and the foreign affairs minister. Let's hope there is more going on behind the scenes. So what do you think? Uh, Spavor's trial actually took place months ago, but the announcement of the sentence was time to uh, another uh, proceeding in the case of Meng Wanzhou in Vancouver. Hmm. Coincidence? I think not. The numbers to call, 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And I'd like to bring in Charles Burton, Senior Fellow at the McDonald laurier Institute, an expert on Canada-China relations, and Chuck Kwan of the Toronto Association for Democracy in China. Thank you both for being with us. Good afternoon, Libby. Good to speak with you and Chuck again. Uh, so, Charles, I mean, uh, any surprise in any of this? Uh, not really. I mean, you know, the sentence was consistent with the sorts of norms espionage by um, foreign nationals. You know, um, Kevin Garrett, who was previously falsely accused of espionage, got eight years. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I think the, the the hopeful aspect of it is that this does set the stage for um, deportation uh, if the Chinese decide to do so. So they wouldn't normally deport until a sentence has been handed down. In the case of Kevin, um, he was also being unjustly held to pressure us over an extradition case involving a, a People's Liberation Army um, um, aerospace uh, spy who was wanted by the United States when this gentleman, Mr. Subin, voluntarily rendered himself to the United States and went state's evidence. Um, there being no real reason to continue holding Kevin, the um, the Chinese government released him 36 hours after his sentence was handed down. So one might see a similar process with regard to um, Kovrigan's favor if we can uh, somehow or other resolve the Meng Wanzhou matter and she leaves Canada. Hmm. Chuck Kwan, do you agree? However, I, I would not be as hopeful as Charles would. Um, I think we're now playing at a much bigger scale. Uh, Huawei is one of the uh, China's uh, new technology giant, and they're not going to um, let go of this e- as easily as uh, the other spy case. Um, I, I, I want to point out that I, I, I read the word revenge spoken by a Chinese uh somebody from the Chinese Communist Party at a very high level. And basically he said this is a revenge for Meng Wanzhou's case. So, you know, you can clearly see what is on uh, China's mind right now, is that this is a revenge, we're going to do a tit-for-tat, and unless you do something uh, that free, to free Meng Wanzhou, um, you don't, ex- don't expect to see the two Michaels again. 
And I would also caution the fact that Chinese always want to save face. So even if we release my Wangzhou today, it would take another six months before they'll get around to releasing the, either of the Michaels. Hmm. Uh, I'm going to take a call from Sita. Hi, Sita. Libby, how are you? Fine. How are you? Good, thanks. Go ahead. Yeah, this is definitely a revenge um, for keeping Ming Wangzhou. Um, why are we holding on to her? We should tr- exchange her for three Canadians. Why is she living in a hotel with comfort? Why, uh, while our guys, our Canadians, are being tortured like wartime? This was Trump fight. Biden don't have Canadian interests at heart. America is looking out for themselves. So what will we gain by holding on to her? Why don't um, our government need to do more action than words? Okay, Sita. Thank um, you. Yeah, the, there are sort of two questions there. Uh, what I have heard, I mean, speculation that actually the Americans are involved in this and that might move things along. But a lot of people say, why are we being so nice to Meng Wanzhou? Uh, she's, uh, you know, she's living in her mansion, going out to dinner. Uh, well, I, I mean, I would say that, I mean, for one thing, Ms. Meng has not been found uh, eligible for extradition, so, you know, there's no reason to to, to hold her in prison if she's uh, able to be detained in Vancouver. But I think with regard to the listener's question, what it really comes down to is, is the Chinese government able to intimidate and coerce the Canadian government by picking up innocent Canadians off the street in, in Beijing and Dandong? and holding them under appalling conditions for a thousand days. And then eventually we, we simply uh, give in and, and release Miss Mung, and they, they give up Kovrigan's favor. You know, if we set that kind of precedent, it would embolden the Chinese regime to engage in these uh, appalling violations of the norms of diplomacy and trade in future every time something came up. I mean, would they do the same thing to get us to render a favorable decision on the installation of the Huawei 5G software and hardware um, solutions into the Bell and Telus network, which, you know, most people feel would would, would uh, pose a, a serious security threat to uh, Canada. So, you know, that's why. Um, and then we have a treaty obligation with the United States with regard to extradition, which uh, I don't think we can um, simply abrogate because it's to our convenience. I think the Chinese government hopes that if they impose, you know, these crippling sentences on our Canadians, that it will lead to um, public outrage. And um, and once Justice Heather Holmes of the B.C. Superior Court hands down her decision on Ms. Mung, which is very likely to be a decision in favor of extradition, that our Minister of Justice, um, Lametti, would then determine it's no longer in Canada's national interest to um, to hold uh, um, to, to to extradite Meng Wanzhou and would return it to Beijing. I don't think that's the direction the government's going. It looks more like, as you said, Libby, that um, we're hoping the United States will negotiate a deferred prosecution agreement with Huawei, which would probably amount to Huawei paying an enormous fine and uh, Meng Wanzhou acknowledging some culpability for the fraud, but. Uh, so far, we're not seeing any progress on that, and, and we don't know if it's because of factors on the U.S. side or simply because Huawei just doesn't want to agree to anything where they admit fault. Chuck, I, uh, I agree with Charles, um, but I also want to point out that somebody had actually pointed out in the media today that um, all our Olympic athletes will be at risk uh, at next year's uh, Beijing Games. And this is a, a very dangerous um, situation. Um, and uh, if we don't, obviously, if 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 we, you know, let go of one case, then they would feel emboldened to, um, you know, capture any Canadians they see fit to to exact uh, a revenge or a hostage. Well, you know what? I, I object a little bit to the use of the word it would embolden them. If they're not emboldened now, I, I don't know what you would call it. Well said. <laughs> uh, let's take a call from Cosner in Toronto. Do I have your name right, Cosner? Yes. Go ahead. Uh, until this country, until sort of Trudeau, I hate when I say we, because we 
we are not making the big decisions with our taxes. Until Trudeau stops giving China, communist China, we have to also add in the word communist, if anyone even knows what that means nowadays, <clears throat> especially the newer generations. If we continue, if Trudeau keeps on giving communist China our money, you're emboldening, you're empowering them. You're basically saying we have no principle. It's okay if you kill Canadians. And we're going to keep on rewarding bad behavior through what's called conditioned response. Rewarding bad behavior. Kind of like a bully in a relationship where he gets to live for free, eat for free. And because you're scared to kick him out, he's like, wow, this is getting even better. Kind of like getting paid, served for, paid more for not working than I did for working. Okay, Costner, I think we get your drift. Thanks for your call. Um, yeah, we're just getting pushed around, Chuck. In a sense, yes. Um, in a sense, everybody is playing, except maybe the U.S., uh, everybody is in the same game. The U.K., France, even Germany. Um, we are all kind of under the, the shade of the bully right now, uh, who is walking tall and feeling great. Uh, and uh, they also, unfortunately, have the backing of a lot of other nations in this world and not just the Western nations or Japan or Korea. So, uh, you know, it's a, it's a situation that we cannot um, change overnight. I agree with the gentleman. Um, certainly we could do a bit more. However, I also have to feel for what uh, what our government's trying to do right now. Uh, they're trying to balance a trade act. Because if every time somebody says sanction, let, let's put a sanction on top of China. Well, guess who's, who's going to shout the loudest our farmers our farmers would be the one that says no no sanction because we will lose our business and then you have lobster fishermen in nova scotia who said no no they're not going to buy our lobster anymore so let's not do that so you know um it, it is tough enough to have a united front even within canada and even worse if we have to have a united front may uh, with or without the u.s uh, among the western nations uh, Chuck, uh, sorry, uh, uh, Charles, do you have a prediction of uh, how this is going to unfold? Uh, you know, you're saying that even if Hmong was released, uh, it's not going to be immediate. So uh, how do you think this will unfold? Well, I, I think that, um, you know, it's dependent on our government making a, a choice. As, uh, as Chuck points out, there are a lot of vested economic interests who have considerable influence at the senior levels of policy making who want us to make um, building Canadian prosperity through trade and investment with China the priority and set aside concerns over things like the genocide of the Turkic Muslims in the northwest uh, part of China or the violation of the agreement on Hong Kong or China's uh, support for rogue regimes, the Belt and Road Initiative, or expansion of the South China Sea. I mean, any number of, of non-economic concerns that exist there, including hostage diplomacy as a tool to to further Chinese interests. Um, I, I think it's come to the point where we have to say to the Chinese regime that if they're not going to play by the rules of the game, then we're not going to engage with them. If they can't engage in fair and reciprocal and uh, transparent um, dealings with us, which have consequences if they're found to be in non-compliance with contracts, then uh, we really have to seek alternatives elsewhere. I would say, though, that um, you know our total... Um, External commodity trade is only 4% with the People's Republic of China compared to about 78% with the United States. And most of this is in uh, agricultural commodities and minerals for which there is a, a world market. So, you know, the idea of, of saying to China, we're just not going to accept your unfair terms of, you know, asymmetrical power relations where you bully us does not necessarily mean disaster for the Canadian economy because we could seek markets for those things in other parts of the world. So I think this is the direction it's going. Um, you know, it looks like we're heading into a new Cold War because uh, China simply does not want to accept um, the existing uh, Western liberal democratic institutions and wishes to to become the dominant hegemon on the planet. Uh, you know, because they believe the U.S. is in decline and they can restructure global institutions to, to serve China's interests to which Canada would become subordinate. Chuck, you know, do you... This is their longer plan. 
Chuck, do you agree that that we could ditch China and just find other markets for the the stuff we trade with them? I agree with Charles. Um, this four percent consistently comes up in our calculation as well. I mean, we can we can lose four percent of our economy. We can gain somewhere else, and and it goes back to the point of you know we have to also respect our bilateral agreement with uh, with the U.S. So you know they have seventy percent of our of our trade. So you know I I would I would look you know twice before we abandon the U.S. and and the extradition treaty. Hmm. I mean, uh, do you think that at, at this stage of the game with a new administration uh, that there would be consequences if we did that? I mean, it seems to me they might be trying to save face. Um, I, I don't. I, I don't. I think Biden is is um, playing the long game. Um, the fact that they are not budging budging, budging on on the Wenwang Zhou cases points to the fact that yeah, you know. Um, they have their own self-interest to think about, and certainly their relationship with China. And as Charles pointed out, it, it, it is now uh, a superpower power battle for, for hegemony and, and dominances, and, and China looks like they're winning. So U.S. has to be very, very careful as well. So they're not going to sacrifice their own, own interest for the sake of uh, the two micros or, or any of the uh, minor, so-called, so-called minor China-Canada problems. Uh, Charles Burton, I'm going to give you 30 seconds for the last word. Well, I must say that I felt very um, reassured when Michael Saver sent a message to Canadians via the ambassador that, um, you know, he's grateful for our support, that he remains in good spirits, and, of course, he hopes to return home soon. Obviously, he is a man with great uh, resilience under appalling um, pressures. And, uh, you know, I I think we all uh, owe him a great deal of admiration and respect for the way he's been conducting himself under these unbelievably unjust uh, charges. Hear, hear. Thank you for ending on that note. And thank you so much, Chuck Kwan and Charles Burton. Bye-bye. Bye. Good to speak with you. Bye, Chuck. And that is all the time we have for today. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.